Hi, it's Shana here. Before this episode starts, I'm popping in with a quick reminder about our upcoming CEU on Thursday, May 16th on a person-centered approach to behavior management. School taught us a lot about ABA. However, the thing with ABA is that it's a science and it's constantly evolving. So a lot of what we learned back then doesn't always apply now. Today, we want to use a person-centered approach to behavior management, um, but what does that look like and how can our learners still make progress in this kind of approach? So join us live on Thursday, May 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time as Shira discusses how to use a person-centered approach to behavior management with your learners. This CEU is presented by our very own Shira Karpel. You can earn one learning CEU for ACE, QABA, or IBAO. Join us live at this event or to watch the recording asynchronously, go to howtoaba.com forward slash CEU. See you then. Hi, I'm Shira Karpow. And I'm Shana Gaunt, and we're board certified behavior analysts. At How To ABA, we provide practical resources, community, and support to ABA professionals. In each episode of our podcast, we will be having real conversations with real people sharing real stories about ABA. We'll share relevant strategies and actionable tips that will make us all better ABA practitioners. It's the ABA content you need that you're not going to learn in a textbook. Hi, Farah. Welcome. Hi. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. No problem. Today, we've got Farah Benson on our call. And where are you calling in from? Um, Clinton, South Carolina. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, so Farah, we're so happy to have you. Um, one of the things that's near and dear to my heart is always ABA and its application to the classroom because I did come into the field through education and special ed before I was a BCBA. So I'm super excited about this conversation. Um, so if you could start by telling us a little bit about your role and what you do. Um, I'm actually a pre preschool special ed teacher. Um, I work with primarily three-year-olds this year, um, and I have a caseload of 17 students, and of those 17, um, 14 of them are on the spectrum, um, but I'm also a board-certified behavior analyst, so I'm able to provide um, ABA strategies and services within my classroom, and I uh, my assistants are um, provide a lot of the line therapy for me. Um, and we work very closely together to, you know, implement strategies and stuff with our kids. Wow. Um, can you give us an idea about, you know, how you embed ABA into the classroom? It's easier said than done. And I think you'd agree with me on that. Oh, absolutely. I think that's the biggest challenge when you're a teacher and you start wanting um, to implement ABA. Um, when I first came into it, it was very kind of a clinical style with a discrete trial training. You sit at the table and you go through the cards and it was very, um, very structured, which is great. Um, but I also found with three-year-olds, that's very difficult to do that um, for an extended period of time in the classroom. Um, we have two and a half hours. So um, I had to look for other ways and creative ways to embed it in what I was doing, um, even with my, writing my IEPs and my lesson plans. Um, for me to write a, you know, an ABA um, strategy in my lesson plan, my principles and stuff, they're like, I, I don't know what this is. <laughs> so I had to find a way to implement that. So, you know, there's a lot of things that we do with um, in ABA, basic skills like imitation, um, even verbal imitation, your echoics and things like that. I use my circle time as a way to practice and implement those skills with the imitation with our songs. We start off with like, you know, just motor imitation, um, 
even after we do head, shoulder, knees, and toes, and we're done practicing touching those body parts, I'll go back and like, everybody touch your eyes, and we make a game of it. Um, and my assistants for the ones, for the students who aren't doing that um, independently, they're kind of hand over hand and showing them how to do it. They're modeling it for them. And so we have time to practice that. So I use my circle time as a way to practice the imitation. Um, when it comes to, once I have students trying to vocalize those songs and sing along, then we practice doing that as well. So that would be one way that I implement in the classroom. And obviously I have somebody that's kind of keeping up with dad on some of those things so we can keep track of it. Um, but it's kind of a team effort. We're all using it. We're all doing it together with the students and we're all helping them do that. Um, and even when we're doing, um, for instance, you know, your uh, matching identical and non-identical things, starting with objects, a lot of the activities we do at the tables using your puzzles and matching your puzzle pieces, you know, animals to animals um, with the big knobby puzzles. And we're teaching fine motor, imitating, you know, picking it up and putting it on the puzzle. And now we're working on matching those pieces. So there's so many little things that we do in the classroom already that the more I started studying ABA and looking at each student, I realized there's a lot of things that we already do in the classroom that uses ABA. We're just not aware of it. That's exactly it. I love how it's not like so often we feel like as BCBA as well, it's ABA or it's education. And I think if you, um, the more experience you get and the more exposure you get, the more you see that ABA is education and it's not about teaching it, you know, discrete trials and getting the kids to, in this vacuum setting, be able to respond, but it's all about embedding that, that natural learning into education, which I just love. Yeah, and I think we also, because as our goal is to teach generalizations, like that's our end goal, if, especially for us to be back away and for them to be independent. So for me in the classroom, it's net. It's naturally what we're doing. So it's so much easier to teach that generalization when we're doing what we're already doing. And then we talk about task analysis. Well, I'm looking at a student saying, okay, they're not doing this. Well, what's that beginning piece? Well, they just need to imitate picking up the puzzle piece for right now before we even get to matching so we're already breaking down those skills to the finest piece we can before we build. And I didn't realize how much I did that until I started really looking into it. And as a teacher, I think that way anyway. I look at each one of my students. What do they need? Where are they? I meet them where they're at. And then we build from there. Well, that's the same thing as using task analysis. You start where they're at and then you build from there on those, those next skills. So it was really the more I studied and the more just getting in the classroom and practicing it, um, even providing ABA services for other classrooms in our district, I did that for a short period of time. It helped me see that we're really doing this already. So when teachers are like, oh, okay, what cards do I need to use? I'm like, well, you're already doing that during your circle time, or you're already doing that during your reading lesson when you break out your vocabulary cards. Like you don't need to create anything new. Let's use what you have in the classroom. So that's one thing I did try to teach other teachers is how to use what they had in the classroom. They don't need to make something new. So it's really You cool. said a couple of really great comments in there. And I'm laughing as you're talking. And it's because Sheer and I are both nodding at everything <laughs> you're saying. And then, like, wait a second, this is a podcast. They can't see us nodding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing the same thing as you're talking. I'm like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're nodding. Um, but you said a couple of really great things. And the one is, you know, you're already doing ABA anyways as a teacher. And, you know, oftentimes I'll go into a classroom and some teachers are, you know, 
have different experiences with BCBAs, right? Sometimes BCBAs will go into a classroom that's non-ABA and, you know, I'm the BCBA. You have to follow what I do because this is what I say and blah, blah, blah. And teachers are like, oh no, here comes the BCBA, which if anyone's like that, they got to stop doing that because (laughs) as BCBAs, we really do need to pair ourselves with reinforcement with teachers. Um, But oftentimes I'll say to teachers, listen, like ABA really is just good teaching. If you're a really awesome teacher, you are doing ABA. You just don't even know it, right? Mm -hmm. BCBA or not in the classroom, you just don't know you're doing ABA. Mm -hmm. But every single time, you know, you say great job when the student does something or cheers them on or gives them a sticker for this or breaks down a task because they can't quite get that and does that error analysis. That's all ABA, which is amazing. Um, We just don't put that terminology with it in in the educational standpoint. And so it's really interesting when teachers like I need to, I need ABA. I'm like, well, let's see what you're doing first. That's Tell me it. what you're doing. And when I start talking them through it, they're like, oh, well, I'm kind of already doing that. I'm like, yeah, let's just find something different. That wasn't working. So let's just look at a new strategy. Let's look at something yeah. else. So, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. And I've, I have so many thoughts on this and questions. Um, one of the biggest struggles I find is um, taking people with a background in education and getting them to take data. Um, <laughs> and I oh, see yeah. you agreeing with me. Yeah. So how did you overcome that? And what have you found to be successful? Um, well, it is funny because um, I will say now education is going more data driven. Um, we're having to do progress monitoring. We're having to um, do tiered teaching to, you know, here's our level one kids, here's our level two. So education shifting to that. The problem is we're not preparing our students for those coming out of the education programs. Um, so I think that's what's oh, so overwhelming for teachers. You know, they're used to just the grades. And I'm like, really, you're doing data. Don't worry about that percentage. that percentage is data, but you got to look at what your the other pieces to that. So for me, um, you know, that's obviously hard when you're playing with involved with three year olds for two and a half hours and you're on the floor and you're doing all these things. But um, I walk around sticky notes. I have sticky notes that have like just like my goals one two and three because i know what those goals are and it's like tally notes um my and i use my assistants a lot they have they keep a lot of like in a you know just they keep anecdotal notes as well because then they can tell me kind of abc that abc's of things that have happened but um you know they're keeping tally notes and stuff um little tally marks um we also because we use google slides a lot for some of our activities I've been able to do a Google form so they can go back and just kind of click on the things they got correct. Well, that kind of creates my graph, my data. How right great there, is that? Awesome. Yeah. So that's been a really good thing and easy for my assistants to use because they can have, they can even have on their phone. So they're just sitting there clicking, 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 but they're still involved with the students. And it's not like you've got these fancy data sheets and, you know, cause that gets a little overwhelming. That's the biggest thing I saw when I actually had a BCBA come in my classroom and the, the data that, you know, you're working, you had a sheet, you're keeping up with all this stuff, but you're trying to work with a student, you had all these cards, you had all this stuff. When well, the classroom, it's just hard to do all of that. So I wanted to try to find a way to make it easier and human friendly, as I say, <laughs> teacher friendly and assistant friendly. Yeah. So we use sticky notes. We have sticky notes around the room so they can just, wow. have, you know, tally up things. Um, because at the end of the day, I mean, that's, I just need something to know what they're getting. And they even make notes like hand over hand or independently. 
so I can keep up with how many times they've done something. We use their little activities a lot of times, and they'll they'll put that stuff in the corner. So I can go back and pull out their journal and like, oh, okay, oh, yep. You know, they did this independently three out of five times, you know? Wow. Yeah, so I mean, I, we're big fans of like, it doesn't have to be fancy. It just has to be doable. And I really try to, when I work with teachers, I try not to like come in and give them, here's all your data sheets and here's what you need to do. But I really try to work with them in terms of what's going to work for your classroom. Is it probe? Is it rating scale? Is it just at the end of the day, like you said, writing a little note on their on their work, on their mm-hmm. permanent product um, and really understanding where a teacher's coming from in not having 17 arms and not being able to collect frequency and partial interval and duration. Yeah. It's just not realistic. Also understanding what your end goal is too, right? right? So it's not about, Hey, you need to take data for the sake of taking data, or you've got all these sticky notes around your classroom, which I love by the way. And yeah. yes, for these people who are listening, sticky notes can be data, <laughs> but, awesome. um, but also knowing why you're taking the data, mm-hmm. right? So I don't need to take data on every single little behavior just because I need data. I need to take data on this one particular thing because my end goal is this, and that's why right. I'm doing it. Or exactly. I'm, I need frequency data because I need to know over time whether this is increasing or decreasing period exactly and that's I think that's the biggest thing is getting teachers to understand and feel comfortable with yes we want you to take data but not on everything that's going on in the classroom you know we want that the one behavior we're focused on right now let's just focus on that one this is all we're worried about right now don't we'll get to the other if we need to get other stuff we'll get to that later so and I think it can get very overwhelming with, like you said, the big fancy data sheets and the big binders that they can come with all this stuff. And, you know, I've seen teachers' faces and it's like they shut down immediately. It's like, I can't handle another piece of paper from anybody else. Yeah, so, no, that's um, so true. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, one of one of my other struggles is, um, you know, taking someone who's in an education background and giving them the training, right? One of the most common things is they... I see that teachers mean so well and so many teachers, especially early childhood teachers really just want to help. Right. But helping your child by doing things for them Mm -hmm. is not going to build their independence. And so I, I find myself often trying to explain why it's important to stand back. It's important to have a certain way to prompt or a certain way to like, you know, not, not give all the answers to the student, but letting them learn. How do you find has been like the most effective way to train the staff who may be coming from a different different background than ABA into using these types of methods? Um, I think the one thing that I've learned because I've seen that a lot and I, you know, as a teacher, sometimes I've been guilty of that too because we get so caught up in the things we have to accomplish um, is to remind them that, well, I'll give an example. I had a student years ago that, they're like, he's just not getting it. He can't, he can't do it. He's just not getting this. And I'm like, but he, you know, two, three, four minutes later, he's responding to what we asked him to do. Like he does it. It's just not, it doesn't look like it's when we want, when we want him to. So I'm just sitting, I kept sitting there and I was like, all right, give him the prompt or the question or whatever. And I said, stop, just give it to him and don't say anything else. And I timed it. She's like, he's not saying anything. He's not getting it. And I said, hang on, just give it a minute. It took him 17 seconds to respond to that question. Which can that feel like a lifetime. It does. And she goes, she's like, that was like five minutes. I said, it was 17 seconds. They don't, I mean, I know it felt like a long time. That's a long time, but it wasn't five minutes. I said, he needs 17 seconds to process what we told him. And now this was a kid in the special ed class. 
And I've used that example when I've talked to teachers. And I said, now that's coming from a student with language delays and communication delays. And he's got to think about it. He's got to process it. Then he's got to figure out how to say it. Like there's a whole lot going on there. Well, you go into any classroom when there's so much going on, 20 kids, you're playing, you're learning, all this stuff is going on. They hear background noises. Now you're trying to get them to learn and do stuff. You've got to give them that processing time. You've got to give them the, the opportunity to process it, to interact with it. You know, you have to give them that time. And I said, this kid took 17 seconds. And I've even timed it. It's like, we're going to sit here for 17 seconds. Let's see what it feels like. And you, you thought it had been 20 minutes. It's so uncomfortable. I mean, and you're just like, just, just say it. Just give me the answer, you know? <laughs> like, no, that was only 17 seconds. So I think we, as adults, lose track of what that time feels like and what that time is. And we forget and we try to rush learning. For sure. Because of the standards and because of the pressure that gets put on us. So it's like we have to do this now and it has to be done now and you have to get it now. And we forget that these are still, whether any age, whether there's preschool, middle school or high school, regardless of where they're at, whether they have a disability or they're carrying baggage in from their home life, whatever, they need processing time. They need that time to figure out what they're learning, what we're trying to teach them. Mm-hmm. And so that was one thing that I did was very enlightening to teachers was to let them feel what 17 seconds feels like. That's so true. And I think that so many of us coming into education with an ABA background, it's so hard for us to let our students make a mistake, right? Like we want to jump in there and we want that errorless teaching and we want to mm-hmm. overprompt, And it's all from a place of very well meaning. Mm-hmm. But when they go into a classroom, guess what? They're going to have to function without somebody like breathing down their neck saying like, say this, say this answer. Don't do that. Do this. And I think as BCBAs and ABA professionals, we need to remember to give our kids those opportunities to make mistakes. It's okay. Okay. It's okay to give them time. It's okay to not be errorless all the time Mm -hmm. um, because they're going to learn so much more from figuring it out than from relying on somebody whispering in their ear. Right. And I think with that, I mean, we always, as a parent, um, I'm always telling my kids, you know, failure is not failure. failure. Failure is learning. Anytime you make a mistake or you're not doing it well, you're learning from that. So take that and learn. And I think that's something we need to transfer to students as well. Um, It's going to teach them to persevere. It's going to teach them when they get frustrated because it's not going the way they want to, then we can help them with that as well. So they're learning a lot of life skills, not just how to how to do this specific skill, but it's life skills, it's functional skills. There's so many things that, that our kids can learn when we give them that time to process or to make a mistake and move on, you know. That's, that's great. I'm really not over prompting and, and, you know, trying to get your agenda out there, but letting, letting the kids learn. Yeah. I love that. Um, so if you had some advice for somebody coming into your type of role or, you know, thinking about a newly minted BCBA, um, or someone who's just getting into the field, like what, what would be your advice to somebody? Um, I think to don't be afraid to ask questions. We don't know all the answers. Um, for me, I'm the only BCBA in my district. So I've had to create a community for myself and reach out to people on Facebook and find groups that I'm comfortable with that I can interact with, that I can ask questions, that I can learn from. Um, so if you're in a situation like that where you're isolated on you know, a lonely little island, 
you have to reach out and it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to find people that you can work with. It's even okay to find somebody to, that you that can kind of mentor you because I think it's intimidating. I saw this a lot and I read this on Facebook a lot when I got when I first got board certified in my in my groups. We felt like we were um imposters. Like you like worked the imposter all the time syndrome. to pass the exam and then all of a sudden you're going, Am I really like can I really do this? Like am I really what I you know, am I really prepared? You know, you kind of feel like this fake when you go in. Um, so it's okay to have those feelings. It's okay to um, reach out to people, find someone to mentor you a little bit when you're getting started. Um, and I think that's one thing I've done. I've done a lot of my own research. I don't mind reading articles. Um, you know, I join groups like How to ABA and those kinds of professional groups where I can get information. I can learn. I can, I'm constantly learning. Like I'm all about anything new to learn more, to make me better at what I'm doing. The more I've done that, though, I think the more comfortable I am with what I'm doing. And I'm okay being the only BCBA here. I don't feel alone because um, I have people I've reached out to that I have my own little community. So really um, I think finding your, 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 your village and your people when you're first starting off is extremely important. It's yeah. so true. I mean, when I first started out, I was a lonely ABA therapist in some kid's basement, right? Yeah. And like, there's nobody there, you know, sure, you know, there was another therapist on the team, but that therapist came in when I left, or, you know, mm -hmm. I would go for lunch, and that therapist would come after lunch. So there was really no interaction. And I, you do feel really lonely. And it's really, really important to reach out and get a community. And, you know, they what's that other saying, two heads are better than one, right? So yeah. I just if you're the only BCBA in your school district, you know, who do you bounce ideas off of and right. saying, okay, well, great. I've got other teachers in my classroom and we can chat mm -hmm. as a community that way. Um, but what about other BCBAs in the field? So, yeah. And I think realizing that passing the exam is not the end of your journey. It's really just the beginning. And it's yeah. a very different journey. Once you're in, in the field practicing, um, you have to just be open to that ongoing learning um, and just becoming better. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I mean, that's with any field, but for sure you have to be willing to continue to move forward. And I did, you know, one thing I've really been excited about is seeing a lot more of um, training on trauma-informed ABA and compassionate ABA because I think there was a time that we got a kind of a bad rap for some things in the past, obviously, several, you know, a long time ago. But I'm glad to see that because it kind of, to me, is more in line with the way I look at BC, being a BCBA. And um, providing ABA services is being responsive to the kids. We are really there for the for the child. And um, so anyway, it's important to my point to that was is continue. It's important to continue to learn yeah. and to grow as a beast, not to get stuck in your ways and get stuck in this rut of. This is, this is how we do it because it's how we've done it before. Exactly. Well, Hanley talks about my way, right? And now it's really important for, you know, to train, you know, tolerance and delay and flexibility and everything else. And we teach that to our students, but, you know, we need to look to ourselves as well and say, am I flexible? Can I change? Right. You know, I've been doing this for ages, but keep up with the research, like get yeah. with, you know, get with the times. It's the 21st century and right. know, ABA isn't what it used to be. And, you know, we're, we really do need to make sure that we're connecting not only with our students, but also with their families and with exactly. the other professionals on the team as well. And speaking of families, like I'm wondering how, like, you know, because the kids are coming to you and they're in your classroom, how do you account for any kind of like generalization with the families or follow through? Are they involved in what you're doing at school? Um, I've been really fortunate to have very supportive parents and families. 
that um, they don't mind reaching out, asking questions and like, hey, I've noticed this when they come home. You know, do you have any suggestions? Um, or they were signing more like what's going on? I'm like, oh, you know, obviously I do let my parents know when we teach them something new. But it's like, what can we do at home to encourage wow. them? So a lot of the parents are very open to suggestions and ideas. Um, and we talk a lot. I see my parents just about every single day when they either pick up or drop off. So I'm sharing with this is what we do in class. This is how we're introducing it. Um, you know, if you would like copies of the pictures we're using, I can send them home with you. I can show you how to do it. I've offered to meet with them on not as a parent teacher conference, but to show them what we're doing to kind of teach it to them if they wanted to. Um, so I make myself very available to the parents as much as I can. Um, I use a lot of uh, technology remind apps. We have a Google Classroom with our school district or for our classroom. So I actually can share some of the stuff with the parents through that and um, which has been great because then they can, I get my little text messages on my app. They're like, Oh, we were doing this. And I noticed they started doing this. What can I do next? You know? So um, I offer whatever the parents are asking about. I'll offer my help as much as I can. Um, and I make available um, my extra time to them in between my classes. So if they want to come in and discuss things or if they want to meet Google or whatever, we can do that. So I try to provide as much support as I can. Um, even though they're not always in the classroom with us. We find the parents coming in sometimes doesn't always work because then the <laughs> students don't want to stay. They want to go with mom and dad. So yeah. they've got a history of going home as soon as mom and dad show up. Yeah, exactly. So, we, you know, they don't get here too soon. <laughs> but um, we definitely, um, my parents are wonderful, very supportive. And like I said, they, they ask a lot of questions. And when they see their kids are making progress, it's like, okay, what's next? Like, what, where do we go? What do I need to do? How can I help them at home? Because um, they, at the end of the day, parents want their kids to do the best that their child can do. Um, and a lot of my parents, you know, I've had some parents with really, really high expectations. And you have some parents who are like, I just, I just want them to say, mom, <laughs> you know, it's simple things, but we work with them and with whatever they are wanting from us, we do the best we can to support that. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. A teacher's job doesn't end at dismissal that I know for sure. <laughs> you have to really be willing to put in, you know, the extra time and, and it really does make a big difference. Um, so if someone was listening to this and wanted to, you know, they work in a classroom or they're a teacher and they wanted to do something to improve how they teach literacy or how they teach communication, is there any advice you can give them from, you know, having bridged those two worlds into what they can implement in their classroom? Um, I would say the biggest thing, and this is one thing I tell all teachers, special ed or not, use visuals and pictures as much as possible. That's my biggest recommendation. Huge. Oh my gosh. Like everywhere. I mean, you can put, have a calming corner for the kids who, when they get upset, they cannot tell you why they're upset when they're screaming and crying and having a complete meltdown. They're not, I can't, when I'm that angry, I can't tell you why I'm upset. And I'm an adult. Um, so have pictures, make a schedule. It, it bugs me when I say have a, have a visual schedule and I see teachers have a written schedule for kindergartners who are not reading yet. Pictures, pictures yes. can go with words. Pictures can always go with words. Pictures and words is a great, great literacy skill. I mean, they're connecting the two together. I mean, there's so many ways we can use pictures to build our language and to you know, help with literacy. Um, I'm yeah, pictures. Please add pictures to everything. I, mean, I love that. If you have a child that's quiet and doesn't want to talk, give them picture choices when they're you're asking questions about a book. 
let them match the picture to the book that you're reading to keep them engaged. There's so many little things, little strategies we can do to help kids um, build language and communication and just build that literacy that um, that's like one of the easiest and simplest ways to me. I could could go off on a whole tangent about the use of visuals and how important it is. And I, you know, I I do ABA training specifically about the use of visuals and how I started saying, okay, name some visuals that you use in your life. You know, number one, do you have a calendar? (laughs) I do. I can't function without mine. Right. So why does the kiddo in your classroom not have a schedule? Period. Right. Number two, do you use a grocery list or some type of program check or a program check off list, a to do list or something? Right. Um, And that's huge. And we need to give our kiddos that as well and very structured. Like, look, first you're doing this and then you're doing this. Period. Because that's how we operate our lives. Right. And that's, and even with your older kids, that's one thing I said. So, and I use the same kind of example when I was going to train like middle school and high school teachers. I'm like, so. You use a to-do list and your planner to remember what to do. We're adults, right? And we do that. Why do we expect our middle schoolers and high schoolers, hormonal, by the way, okay, whose minds are racing all over the place to remember everything that they're supposed to do that day and their assignments and what's going on at home, but they're supposed to remember all that by themselves because they can do that. Like that just doesn't, developmentally doesn't even make sense, you know? Um, and so you kind of get that moment of like, they're like, oh, oh yeah, I guess I might need to work on that part. I'm like, just, you can just write it down or, you know, and they're like, well, they don't want to write it down. I'm like, well, you can write it. You can just hand out a little to-do list every day. Just, here you go. Yeah. I mean, there's just simple things we can do to make in the long run. It makes our life easier as the adults. But anyway, I just, there's so many different ways we can use visuals regardless of age from pictures to writing it down to checklist, whatever. There's just so many things that we can do. I mean, you mentioned Google Classroom before as well. I mean, we've got so much like, sure, we can write it down. There's sticky notes and everything else, the good old fashioned way, but there's also technology that exists. Our kids are tech savvy. I mean, how many times can a teacher walk in the classroom in high school and say, my computer's not working and a student comes over and fixes it for them? (laughs) I mean, you know, so I mean, with the way they use their phones and stuff, there's so many different ways that we can use that to make it functional for them. And again, we're building their independence that way, which is another big thing we try to do. And I think so many times teachers confuse the use of visuals with a student who may not be like vocal and they need to use visuals to communicate. And then they get, well, this student is vocal and they can communicate. So they don't need the visuals. And it's just so not the case. Like there's so much more, you know, behavioral and receptive understanding and all of that stuff really overlaps with the visuals. I was working with a student the other day in a classroom and he had, you know, I was there for about an hour chunk of his, his direct learning time. And we sit down, we're having snack and there was no there was just a schedule for the entire day so there was one big schedule for the entire day and then I'm sitting there for the hour and I was wondering what's going on I was like well we're having snack like then what and she was talking about maybe going for a walk and maybe you know doing some work and reading and this and then I'm like where's the schedule? I, I, I'm getting nervous. And I felt so bad for the kid who's just going to sit here at the mercy of whatever's going to happen in this hour. So I love the idea of breaking it down as much as you can. Like I always say, there can't be too many visuals. I don't think you can mm-hmm. go wrong. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, and I think that's a really good point you brought up is we oftentimes give kids the big schedule for the day. But like those in-between times when they're finished with their work and they're just sitting there, 
they need a time like, okay, when you finish your work, then you can read a book, like just give them options and choices. So that way they kind of know a lot of kids get very anxious when they don't know what they're supposed to do. Yes. I mean, all ages and people don't realize that, but I'm like that, that a lot of what we see is anxious behaviors. You know, mm-hmm. I do don't know what to do. And then they're being told stop doing that. I'm like, okay, well then what am I supposed to do instead? That's it. You say a lot of kids, adults too. I do. If I have, if I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, if I don't know the expectations, I'm not on the spectrum, but I'm completely nervous, right? Like what now? What do they expect of me? I, yeah, exactly. That's why we have to remind ourselves we have the same tendencies as an adult. And so when we, I try to always, when I'm talking to other adults and teachers, I try to bring up what we do. And I'm like, okay, now we're expecting kids who are not fully developed until 24. I mean, their brain's not fully developed until they're, what, 22, 24 now? And we're expecting a 16-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 4-year-old to just wait it out. It's fine. <laughs> it doesn't work. Right. It does not work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love that. Just reminded me, I'm like, I need to make a checklist. This is how my brain works. I'm like, okay, I need to make a checklist of like things to remember when you're doing, you know, classroom yeah. teaching or things to remember when you're in an ABA session. <laughs> I'll, I'll create that share at some point in time. I have a lot. All my spare time. Yeah, I have a lot of to do. I have a lot of checklists. I have tons and tons of lists. So. Yeah. I use those a lot. Our own visuals. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So thanks so much, Farah. Um, I guess one last question would be just, you know, you talked about, um, you know, advice for other people. Is there mm-hmm. any advice that anyone's ever given you? Like what would be, what would be the best advice that uh, someone's ever given you? Oh, wow. Um, here's what I will say. Um, and this is, it goes back to getting board certified as a BCBA. Um, the exam's hard. I'm not going to lie. I was not the one and done person. I had to take it. I was a retaker several times. And you want to quit. You really want to quit because you're like, if I can't pass this. But um, I remember I was talking to somebody. They said the test does not define the kind of BCBA you're going to be or the kind of teacher you are. Um, but if this is something you want, it's more of that perseverance to get there. And that stuck with me because I'm passionate about this. I love this. And I'm so glad that I I achieved it and that I passed that. And it doesn't define, you know, the fact that I had to take it several times to me does not define the kind of BCBA or the teacher that I am. It probably Um, makes you or defines you even better, right? It it makes you stronger and that perseverance uh, helps you and defines who you are even more than if, you know, you didn't have to you know, go through those challenges. Absolutely. I think it helped me more even in the classroom. I mean, you know, you, you go in there and you're like, if I, I, I've got this, I can do this, you know? So, um, but I had a lot of people supporting and encouraging me not to quit if this is what I really wanted to do. So um, yeah, passing the exam is really important, but it's not, it's not anything close to what you experience working in the field. And from our experience of just seeing so many people who come out of the exam, passing that doesn't necessarily make you a good practitioner, unfortunately. And there's so much that uh, it's not a guarantee getting those, Mm -hmm. getting that exam doesn't mean, Oh, now I'm done and I know what I'm doing. And, and it, it doesn't go the other way either. Just because you don't pass doesn't mean you're going to be a fantastic practitioner. Sometimes it's just the test taking skill. And so we're so glad that you had that um, ambition and passion to really persevere because it's so important. Yeah. And it, like you said, it makes you, it makes you stronger and better at what you do. And I think that's why for me, it's important to continue learning. It, t- it taught me to continue to push forward, not to just, okay, I either I quit or I'm done. 
I, I kept learning and kept and kept improving and getting better. So there you go. <laughs> Amazing. That's great. That's great. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was really, really interesting and enlightening. And we're so excited to be sharing all of these stories with the rest of our community. Um, and the messages were so great. Um, we love learning from other people who do things maybe a little bit differently or have jobs different than what we've experienced. So we're so glad that you've shared that with us. Thank you. I've really enjoyed being here and I'm glad you guys had me. Um, it's really exciting because like I said, I follow you guys. So this is you know, kind of like celeb for me <laughs> to meet y'all and to be on this. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And it's been really great connecting with you too. It's really, really, really nice to see the face and the personality behind a name. So yeah, thanks for being this is here. awesome. Thank you guys so much. Love it. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Y'all have a good one. Thanks. Thanks for joining today's conversation. Wherever you get your podcast, please go and subscribe, rate and review so others can find out about us too. For more from How to ABA, including free resources and ABA materials, visit our blog at howtoaba.com and make sure that you're following us on social media for more practical tips and updates.